0: This morning's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Luke. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated.
1: You know, since the creation of humanity... The way you mark a momentous occasion is by singing a song, by writing a song, by breaking out into song. And it really has been like that since the very beginning of creation. If you remember in the Genesis account, God presents Eve to Adam, and Adam breaks into a song. Oh, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It wouldn't really go over on the pop radio today, but that day and age, it was a smashing hit. But it was a song. And what happens a little bit later in Israel's history is God shows up and provides deliverance from Egypt and Pharaoh's army chasing the Israelites. And they get on the other side of the river. And what happens? But Moses and Miriam break into song. And then, of course, the Bible has its own songbook capturing all types of momentous events, some well-known and some very personal But there's a whole book in the Bible, the Psalms, filled with songs to be sung. And so it's no wonder that at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, which is well known for its long introduction around the events of Jesus's birth, that we have four songs right away. And those are the four songs we're walking through in the Songs of Messiah over the next weeks. Today we're in the second song. We're in the song that is sung by John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah. And while most of us have probably never written a song, and if we have, no one has ever heard it, most of us have experienced the beauty of what can be felt when we listen to a song that's well written by others. The way it can connect with us. The way we can connect to an emotion or a longing that would be hard to put into words. But nevertheless, we hear a song and we feel as though that song speaks on our behalf. A song can capture longing and emotion in a way that other things can't. And in fact, it can even sneak up on you, right? You hear a song for the, the first time in a long time and you immediately connect to an emotion when you were a child or to some event in your life that was happy or maybe not so happy. And it's because it communicates and connects with our desires and our longings. And while we haven't all written a song, we all have longings. And we all long to express those. Some of us don't, don't do it very well, though. And I think one of the reasons is because we all wonder if our longings and desires will ever be met. I mean, at the deepest level, there are things that we long for that we can't even put into words. And we wonder, will that be met? Does God see it? Does he honor it? For some of you, you spent most of your life, or you still are spending your life wondering, will I ever get married? Or if you are married, you find yourself in a situation where you wonder, will this marriage ever be anything close to what I think the Bible teaches us about marriage? And you long for that, to experience a marriage the way God's designed marriage. Some of you, you wonder, you long for The day when you will be free from a particular sin or temptation. Some of you are so lonely. And you look happy on the outside. And I would never know you're lonely, but you are. And you always wonder if other people see it. But more than that, you long for true connection. Will people see me? Do people know me? Or will I always feel lonely, quietly? And this song this morning comes from a man who's been waiting a long time. His whole life, he's an elderly man. And he speaks on behalf of a people that has been waiting since the beginning of time, since Genesis 3, 15. And he writes on their behalf. And it's in the midst of this long waiting that Zechariah writes this song. And so today I wanna look at this song. I wanna look at three things he praises God for. The first thing he praises God for is God's long-awaited visit The second thing he praises God for is God's tender mercy. And the third thing he praises God for is God's divine light. So let's look here first at God's long-awaited visit. Right away, after the Holy Spirit comes upon Zechariah, if you look in verse 68, he breaks out in a blessing saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, one of the most important words in the entire song is the word visit. It's in verse 68. It's also in verse 78. This visit is not an ordinary visit. You see, when God visits his people in the Bible, it's always a big deal. When God visits his people in the Bible, it's for him to come near. And particularly in this instance, to come near with an inclination to save, with an inclination to bring about mercy, with an inclination to redeem. This is a long-awaited visiting. And what's interesting is to help us get at what this word visit is getting at. It does help us to understand the original language, the word that's used here has a root word that is scopus. And for us, Ben mentioned this last week, a microscope or a telescope. You hear the word scope in it, scopus. Scopus. This root word is related to words we use for vision, for seeing. And so to say that God visits his people is to say that God sees his people. He doesn't just take observation of them, but he sees them, almost like a supervisor, right? that actually comes from the same word. For someone to vise or to look or to overlook or to oversee is one thing. But to have someone who's dedicated to be a supervisor is to have someone who looks with great care, who looks at the detail. And when you put the prefix epi on this word, that is what it's getting at. This seeing is very intimate. This seeing is very specific. And this is a seeing, a visiting that God's people have long awaited for. And the people that would have originally heard him, Zechariah, break into song, would have immediately thought of the first visitation that God did in this unique way. And the first visitation would have been the Exodus, when God visits his people in Egypt to save them. In Exodus 4:31, this is what the people respond to Moses and Aaron by saying, The people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had Visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. So, you see, this word is very important. God is now visiting his people because he sees them in bondage, he sees them in slavery, and he's coming to act decisively. And this isn't the only place that Luke, the writer of this gospel and the writer of Acts, uses this word visit in a very important way. In Luke 7, 16, the people are watching Jesus' ministry and, and they're watching it. And they say, God has risen up a great prophet. God has visited his people. And later in the book of Luke, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. He says, you did not recognize your day of visitation. You do not see that I am here to save This is your day, your long-awaited day of God's visiting you, just like he did in the Exodus. But he tells the Pharisees, you did not see. Will you see? And of course, that's an invitation to us. God is visiting us. And this season is a time for us to reflect on God's having visited us. But will we see? Do we see that God sees us and visits us? Later in the book of Acts, Luke reports how Peter... After having gone to Cornelius' house and now taking the gospel to the Gentiles, he's, he's reporting back to those in Jerusalem. He says, God visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. So you see, when God shows up, something happens. When God visits, things change. And you and I kind of understand this. I mean, if we want to see someone, if we want to care for them, what do we say we do? We pay them a visit. We stop by If we just want to check in, we could call them. But we want to go to them, be in their presence, so we can visit them, to care for them, to help them. And God has visited his people. And so this visitation is the visitation. It's the long-awaited visit that God had promised. That's what we see here if we keep reading. Verse 70 this is the visitation he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. This is the visitation that everyone in Israel has been waiting for. And Zechariah breaks into a song to tell us this. And to really understand, to really understand the longing that would have been experienced As Zechariah sings this song, we have to understand all of the layers of waiting and longing that were happening. We can start most immediately with Zechariah. If you're familiar with the beginning of Luke's gospel, you'll remember that an angel comes to Zechariah. Zechariah uh, had been a priest his whole life, and there were lots of priests in Israel. And it just so happens every priest is trained for the day. They might get their uh, lot chosen and go in just one layer of cloth away from the Holy of Holies and light some incense. And Zechariah has gone his whole life and presumably had never been chosen, but this day he is. And he goes in, being prepared his whole life for this, when he goes in to light the incense, an angel comes to him. And an angel tells him that even though he and his wife have been barren and in their old age, that she will bear a son. And what does he do? Actually, he does what Abraham did, but that's another story. He says, how will I know? Well, the angel isn't pleased with that. And he says, well, I'll tell you how you'll know. But first of all, now know this, that you won't be able to speak for nine months. And so, of course, you know, he he goes on with the rest of the prophecy. Zechariah comes out. It took him a long time. So people know something happened. And now he cannot speak for at least a year, right? Because at this point, the text tells us that they had not yet conceived. And we know a pregnancy is... 42 weeks maximum. So this has been quite a long time. And when he sings this song, this is the first utterance his voice has been able to make. And it's a song of praise. And so in the most immediate context, Zechariah has had almost a year of reflection, not just on the visitation of the angel, but also on what it means and what it means that this son that will come from his womb, his wife's womb will be the son that the angel speaks about. So he's been waiting and longing, wondering what this will be like. But then, of course, that is in the context of Israel's waiting. For example, many of you may know the last time a prophet has been in Israel until now with John the Baptist was 400 years or so. That's like almost double the length of the the age of this country. It's quite a long time. No one's heard from anything. Where's God? Lots of crazy things are happening. Where is he? So people have been waiting for God to speak again. Does God still keep his promises? Gosh, David seems like a long time ago. Abraham seems like a long time ago. When's God going to show up? When is he going to speak? So they've been waiting 400 years for some word from God. But then if you go back to David, David waits his whole life and wonders if it will be Solomon If Solomon will be the long-awaited king on David's throne that will reign forever, but yet we know, no, even Solomon falls. And so now Israel's been waiting for this king in the line of David. When is that going to happen? They've been waiting for that. If you go back to Abraham, God promised Abraham, in you, I will bless the nations through your offspring. When's that going to happen? We've been waiting quite a long time. And really it goes back all the way to Genesis 3.15 from the very first word of promise that God gives after the fall. He says, I'm going to make all things new. I'm going to make this right. I'm not going to give up on this. I'm going to crush the head of the serpent through a seed. See, it's in all of these layers of longing that God finally visits. And I think that that's helpful for us because in all of our stories, we find ourselves in a place somehow, some way, where we are truly waiting upon God to show up. We are truly waiting on God to act, to provide, to answer our prayers, to lead us. I wonder what that is for you. Where are you waiting for God to show up? (laughs) On the other hand, of course, you may have moved on from that and just assumed God doesn't show up, at least not for you. He may show up for other people, and that's great but you've you've never seen him show up for you in the ways that you desire. Maybe that's you. And so you believe that God sees, but maybe he doesn't see you. And then of course, others of you, you finally think after all this waiting, actually God really doesn't see. But for, for all of us, wherever we fall, this text, this song at the beginning of Luke's gospel tells us, answers our question that God does see. And God does visit his people. He sees us and he cares for us. And the song goes on. Not only does he see you, not only does he answer you, not only will he provide for you, not only has he provided for you in Jesus, which we'll talk about a little more as we move on, but let's keep moving because not only does he sing a song of praise to God's visiting, which has been long awaited, but also he sings To God's tender mercy. And we see this in two places in the text. First, we see it in verse 72. He says, To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. And then again in verse 78, let's start in 77 though, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. It's interesting. I was curious what this word tender was in the Bible. The word mercy is very clear. I already had an idea of what the Greek word would have been. But I went to look at this word tender. And the word is the same word for bowels. Right? For... uh, So what does that even mean? Right? So that God loves us from his bowels. Well, this is actually a, a very common Hebrew idiom that the Greek text picks up on. And essentially, it means that God... It's as though God loves us in his mercy and he experiences this mercy from the core of who he is. This isn't an afterthought. This comes from his very bowels. You know what that feels like, right? People say that your gut is our second brain. That's why when you're nervous, you don't just think about your anxiety. You feel it in your stomach. There are direct connections from your brain, from your gut, and your brain. They're connected. And so no wonder why the language is from the bowel, from the very core of who you are. And so this, this mercy that God experiences, this tender mercy, is a mercy from the core of who he is. He's as though he feels it in his very gut. It's when you see your child in pain, you see your child hurting, and you feel it. You almost feel your posture change. This is the, the way in which God has mercy toward his people. That's what Zechariah is saying. And I don't know why I thought of this, but it reminds me when I was in middle school football. I remember I suffered from asthma when I was a kid and I grew out of it. I, I don't even know how that happens, but I did. I haven't experienced it in a long time. But it was bad and it was during two days and it was hot and we were doing up-downs. And if you don't know what up-downs are, be glad. And so I was doing up-downs in, in full gear, which should be illegal, maybe it is now, and it was hot. and We hadn't had a water break in a while. And there are lots of, you know, football teams are like small cities. And so there's so many kids and coaches don't really see us. And I, I'm not going to quit. That's, that's crazy. So I keep going, but I'm having an asthma attack. And, um, and my, my, my inhaler's over here, but I'm not going to break down and go do that. And somehow out of nowhere, I remember getting tunnel vision and not knowing what was going to happen. And I felt this, this thing it was a hand, grabbed my mask and pulled me up and pulled me away. And I remember as I was sort of woozy, seeing the face of one of the assistant coaches and he had this deep like look of pity on his face. And he reached in my misery in his tender mercy and pulled me to the sideline and gave me my inhaler and told me to get a drink of water and to not be stupid. And next time, take a break when I need to. And while that's not exactly like God's tender mercy, it's not completely different. Because you see, God sees us. There were lots of other players, but he saw me. And he came and got me. And he pulled me aside. And he had mercy upon me. And so God looks upon his people with tender mercy. Very specific mercy. But why? To what end does God exercise mercy toward his people? Is it so that we can just do our own thing? He actually tells us in the song why and how God gives mercy. Let's keep reading past verse 73. So he swore an oath to Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And then in verse 79, he again, the second time he talks about mercy, tells us why, again in verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Here's the deal. God's tender mercy is merciful because he frees us from the slavery of sin and calls us to himself. That is the mercy of God. I'll just run through it, all the places in this song. Verse 68, God redeemed his people. Every time you see the word redeemed, you need to think slavery. You and I have no choice but to be someone's master. We cannot be our own master. Okay, so that's not even an option. You can either be a slave to your own desires, which ultimately is a slave of the Prince of Peace or this world, the Bible says, Or you can be a servant or slave of God, the Most High, who is generous to his servants, who gives us life and breath and everything. And so when the Bible says that God redeems us, what he does is he redeems us from slavery to the world and he gives us the new yoke that is easy and the burden that is light. And we get to follow Jesus as his servant. And so his mercy redeems his people. In verse 69... His his mercy raises up a horn of salvation. It would be really easy to miss this imagery in the Bible, but it was in the call to worship. It's all throughout the Bible. The horn is a sign of strength. What does an animal use to fight a battle? He uses horns, right? And oftentimes in the Bible, that animal that's strong with horns is an ox. That's where we get the phrase strong as an ox. And so what happens here is, this is the Messiah. God raises up an arm, a horn of salvation that's stronger than an ox that can take on all of our enemies in battle. So that's what God mercy, God's mercy does on our behalf. Verse 72, God keeps his promises to his people and remembers his covenant. Verse 79, God gives light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. So, so the point of all of this is God's great mercy calls us to himself, that is holiness. When God calls you to himself, he separates you for his uses. That is holiness. So to call you to holiness is to separate you. God calls a holy people, and then we live in light of that, which is to walk in righteousness. And then he says to do it, in verse 75, before him all our days. This is the Latin phrase, quorum Deo. Have you ever heard of that? Before the face of God. So God's mercy frees us from all of our enemies, not so we can just go do our own thing, but so that we can belong to him and we can walk in righteousness and know his desires and be fulfilled and live all of our life, every square inch of it before his face. This is what Jesus says when he leaves in his ascension in Matthew 28. He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Why does he say that? He says that because now all your enemies have been dealt with. I have all authority. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What does he say after that? For lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you see this? God calls us to himself to walk in his ways because that's where freedom is and he's with us always. That's what Zechariah is praising God for. Every time God visits his people, he calls us to himself, and we walk with him. And you know what's 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 amazing, we just read this in, in city Bible reading, Zephaniah three fifteen. This is what the prophecy says. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. What is he speaking of? He's speaking of what Zechariah is speaking of. To be freed from the slavery of sin is a gift. Look at verse 73. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we might serve him without fear. Do you hear that gift language? To grant us. God's mercy is the mercy that calls us to himself. He does away with our sin. He does away with all of our enemies. And in the gospel of Luke, Our enemy is defined in Luke over and over and over as anything that opposes the way of Jesus. Why? Because anything that opposes the way of Jesus, whether it's in you or outside of you, is your enemy because it's against you. Anything that opposes the way of Jesus is not for your good. But God in Jesus Christ has done away with all enemies. You're free. That's what Zechariah is singing about. And that's worth singing. So we see that God has visited his people to save them. And he's shown his tender mercy that he's done away with all of our enemies and he's called us to himself so we can be separate and walk with him and live life before him. Because you know, if he wouldn't have done away with our sin, his visitation, if he was in our midst, would be judgment. It's important to see that. When God shows up to visit people, sometimes it's to save Sometimes it's to judge. But if he comes and we trust in Jesus, it's to save. And now he can live in our midst before us all of the time. And that, of course, is the call in Zechariah's song, is to believe in God's provision in this visitation. And that's where he turns next. He turns next to show us that we particularly see God's mercy visiting his people through God's great light or God's divine light. So we come to the end of the passage to see this. This is in verse 78 and 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. You know, there are many images in the Bible that speak of the Messiah, and this might be one that we're less familiar with. To speak of the Messiah as a sunrise, I want to invite you for the, for the rest of our time together to get your mind's eye around a sunrise. Think about yourself at the beach since we're in Florida. Maybe you get up early and you look out and it's dark. And then there's dawn. And you see this beautiful image of a sunrise. This image that we see in Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 9, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shown. Of course, in Isaiah's prophecy, we see a clear connection to verse 79. The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness. Surely Zechariah had Isaiah 9 in mind. And so what does dawn mark when you see dawn happening? What is it marking? It marks the rise of the sun, of course, yes, but it also marks the end of the night and all the concerns of the night. And the Messiah brings a new dawn, a new day, and he does away with the old darkness. And in his first coming, which were... Seeing here today in Zechariah's song, God has not visited his people with a trumpet blast of war. But as one commentator put it, he has visited us as a smiling morning, which in gentle glory floods the world with joy. There's nothing like a gentle warm sunrise, especially when you're freezing cold and it's dark. Many of you have been camping, no doubt. I didn't go camping until I was old enough to take myself because my parents loved me and never took me camping. <laughs> and in high school, I went camping, and I remember one specific night. It was early, it was like late spring, but even in the Midwest, it can be 80 degrees one day and 40 the next. It's rare, but it happens. Well, this was said night. And it was a beautiful day. I remember playing a baseball game that day. was in high school. That night, a friend and I went out to his parents' land, and a storm came, and it was dark, pitch dark, and all we heard was terrible racket, lightning striking trees less than a mile away from us, terrible sounds, screeching animals. I don't know if there was that, but it was bad. <laughs> and you couldn't see anything. And I was in my own tent. My friend was in his other tent. And I was terrified and with the storm came in a deep cold front and I was freezing. It got to the upper 30s and I was not prepared for that. And so I'm shivering in my blanket and I remember waking up probably every 15, 20 minutes longing for sunrise. Deeply longing for it, shivering in every part of my body. Emotionally, I wanted to scream because I was so cold and so angry all at the same time. But I couldn't sleep. I couldn't numb away the longing for sunrise. And then I remember finally waking up one time after a light sleep and something felt different. And I unzipped the, the, the tent and I stepped out and it was still dark, but I could tell it wasn't as dark. And so I I walked over shivering still to a part on the other side of a lake where there was sort of a rise and I could look to the east and dawn had come. And I watched as the rising sun brought increasing light and with it warmth. And at first when it came over the horizon, it pierced my eyes. But then subtly and surely night was banished and I stopped shivering as much. And warmth came. Charles Spurgeon speaks of this image in our text by saying, The coming of Jesus to us, when he does really come into our hearts, takes away the darkness of ignorance, sorrow, carelessness, fear, and despair. Our night is ended once for all when we behold God visiting us in Christ Jesus. Our days may still cloud over, but night will not return. O you that are in the blackest midnight, if you can but get a view of Christ, morning will have come to you. There is no light for you elsewhere, but believe in this. But if Jesus be seen by faith, you shall need no candles of human confidence. The beholding of Christ shall be the ending of all night for you. Listen to that line. But if Jesus be seen by faith, you shall need no candles of human confidence. Why? Because the light of the rising sun will overpower a thousand, a million candles of human confidence. And so Zechariah has finally said You and I don't need to rely merely on optimism, although I like optimistic people better than pessimistic people. And I don't think it's a bad thing. We don't have to rely merely on optimism, which basically looks out and sees the pieces of a puzzle and imagines how they could come together in a terrible situation. But in fact, Zechariah speaks of a longing that is covered in pitch black darkness and can only be chased away by the coming and rising of a sun. And another thing I love about the image of a son is that when we think about the longing of our heart, we realize that it can't be fulfilled by anything that's available to us. There are longings in your heart that cannot be met by more competency. There are longings in your heart that cannot be met by more recognition or more power or more control or more comfort or more human praise. The Bible says this is because our ultimate longings are only met in God, only met by God. And so this image of a sun, this growing light gives us great warmth and vision now. And this light guides our feet into a way of peace and righteousness, but it also brings with it the promise that the sun will continue to rise. And at one point it will be at blazing noon. And you and I live In that in-between period of the dawning of the sun and the second coming, which will be the sun at blazing noonday, when all darkness will be pushed away. I'm reminded of when I lived in San Diego, there's this thing called the marine layer. And it happens every day. And you think it's going to rain, but it's not rain clouds. You wake up in the morning and it's cloudy, but it's because there's cold ocean air in San Diego is the desert. And there's a mountain range. It's about 4,000 feet high called the San Miguel Mountains. And whenever that air from the ocean comes in and runs up the mountains, it hits the desert air and it, and it creates a marine layer is what they call it. It's clouds. And if you visited San Diego, you'd think this place is cloudy all the time if you were only there in the morning. But people who lived there knew that about noontime, that was all going to burn away every day. The sun was going to burn it away. We knew that the sun was what was going to burn the marine layer away and that it wasn't going to rain. And you and I, in our life, we need to realize that when we look at things and see that marine layer in our life, we have no power to bring about the sunrise. The only thing we can do is look to the light, look to the face of Jesus. And then when we look to the face of Jesus, increasingly over time, that marine layer will be burned away. And that's what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. We who behold him will be transformed from one degree of glory to another. So my invitation to you, Zechariah's invitation is to turn your face to the light. Turn your face to Jesus by his word. Jesus sees your pain and he sees your confusion and he has visited you. Turn your face to him. Jesus knows the shadows of your life that you're terrified for anyone else to know and his light wants to go there. Turn your face to him. Jesus sees the chaos in your life and as you try to fix it yourself and he wants to lead you and he's shining his light so that your feet can walk in the way of peace. Turn your face to him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now asking that you would draw us to yourself through the face of your son, Jesus. Some of us are shivering cold in darkness and we long to feel your warmth and your light. Lord Jesus, you've made it clear that we have no control to bring about the rising sun. You bring it about by your own mercy. You save us when we cannot save ourselves. And now we turn to you to receive your light and your warmth. And it's in your name we pray, amen.